that you are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire that you may become rich and white garments that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Be zealous therefore and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Have you ever known anybody who was excommunicated from the church? You know, just a little more, Jim. Somebody who was put out by the church. We used to do that, or they did that quite a bit before my time. Just catch a guy at the barn dance on Saturday night, Sunday morning, kick him out of church. I, I knew a guy who had been excommunicated from the church. He lived across the road from the little church that I pastored when I was a kid. I must admit that I felt a little sense of uneasiness when I would visit him. For he had this veneer of, uh, of resentment and, and uh, anger toward the people who went to church across the road from him and maybe even a little hatred for them. And yet I sense that underneath that that feeling of resentment and, and hatred was this underlying pain that he felt because of their rejection, the wounds that their exclusion caused him, excommunicated from the church. The person of our text is on the outside. He's been put outside the church, but he's no mere man. He is the Christ himself. Ex he is the excluded one. He is excluded from heaven by love, excluded from earth by hatred. He came into his own and his own received him not. Excluded from the church by neither love nor hatred, but by a lukewarmness that was loathsome to our Lord. And the sight of him on the outside of the church brings us up short. That here is a church that's influential without influence, that was wealthy yet poor, that is satisfied yet pitiful. And I, am, I confront the fact with you this morning that it is possible for a church, for any church, for this church to bear his name, to meet together ostensibly for his worship, to boast in our own achievements, to feel that we have arrived and have need of nothing. And at the same time, while all the time 
The Lord of the church stands on the outside and this is His judgment. You are poor and wretched and naked and blind and miserable. But before you in your pious indignation would be tempted to say, Ah, yes, that's that church. That's my church. That's the way we are, rich and big and exclusive. Before you have an opportunity to say that, let me remind you that this text has an individual application. You have quoted with me, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and will open the door, I'll come in to him, sup with him and he with me. And you've made that a personal application, an individual application. And so what Jesus seems to be saying is, if there is one person inside the church who is willing to open up his life to me, is willing to let me really be at home in his life, then I will make a difference in him that will make a difference in the church where he dwells. If there is one person who would open up his life to me, I'll come in and the difference I make in his life I will make in that church where he, where he belongs, where he is apart, so that he is the one on the outside knocking and he seeks entrance through the life of one person here. I tell you, the world has not yet seen what God can do with one person who is totally yielded to him. I want you to notice three things about this one who is excluded, who is outside, who seeks entrance to a church that's big and wealthy and self-sufficient. First of all, the text suggests that he is the divine speaker. Thus he said, write what the Lord says to the church. God has something to say to the church. And what he says to this church and to a church that has excluded him is accentuated by what he is and how he says it. And the text suggests there are three things about what he says or how he says it. First, it says that he speaks with the voice of reliability. He is the reliable speaker. He is the amen, he said. The one who says this is the amen. The Hebrew calls him the God of the amen. That word was attached to any significant affirmation or statement to guarantee its, its uh, truth and its importance so that when you saw the word amen at the end of a declaration or affirmation, you know it was there because they were saying this is absolutely reliable and truthful. Now what he's saying is this, what God says to the church is to be obeyed unquestionably. It is to be trusted implicitly. God is reliable and what he says is reliable. Therefore what he says, because he is reliable, is to be trusted and obeyed without question. Thus saith the Lord. God says it and that, and that settles it. Now I've heard people say, God says it and I believe it and that settles it. Well, friend, if God says it, that settles it whether you believe it or not. I mean, you can drop out that part of the statement. God says it, that settles it. What God says is absolutely reliable. He speaks with a voice of 
of reality. He is the faithful and true witness, it says. True in the sense of that which contrasts with the fake and the artificial. There's so much artificiality in this world, isn't there? A friend of mine said he preached to perform the wedding of a young lady who grew up in the town where he pastored. He said, I knew that little child. I knew her when she was just a little girl. She went away to become a stewardess and, and married somebody on, and got, fell in love with somebody on a flight. She was working and they were getting married. And he said, she stood by me, stood before me to get married. said, she had on a wig beautiful blonde hair. He said, I knew her when her hair was kind of mousy brown, but said, as she had on this beautiful wig, and he said, she didn't have on her face. She'd gotten one out of a jar. He said, it just kind of plastered on big cakes of, of, uh, of makeup, and he said she had um, plucked all of her eyebrow out you know, for some strange reason, and had gotten a pencil and just kind of, you know, painted her one there eyebrow. And he said she had, on, had these long eyelashes, you know, that weren't really hers, and fingernails that were long. He said, all I could think about while I was performing that wedding was, boy, is he going to be surprised. That, <laughs> this is not genuine. This is a fake. What is reality? We live in two realms. We live in the spiritual and the physical. We live in the tangible and intangible. We live in the seen and the unseen. What is reality? The Apostle Paul says that which is seen is temporal. That which is unseen is eternal. What is reality? That which you can apprehend with the senses or that which is eternal? Of course, reality is that which is eternal. What is reality in your life? I mean, what turns you on, off? What sickens, saddens, satisfies you? What has the greater influence on your life? Your problem or His power? What affects you the most? The things you see or the things you do not see? Whose approval do you desire more than any other? The way you answer these questions reveals what is reality in your life. Do you see what, Paul, what Jesus is saying? You let me into your life and I'll make your church genuine. One person opening up his life to me and I'll bring the real thing to that church and to that life. Everything else is a mirage. Not only does he speak with a voice of reality and, and, uh, re, and uh, reliability, he speaks with a voice of vitality. He is the beginning of the creation of God. Now that does not mean that Jesus was the first thing God created when he began creating. It doesn't mean that. It means that he is the moving cause of all creation. He is dynamically the beginning. It means that all life begins with Jesus. I need to say that again. All life, your life, all life begins with Jesus. Everything else is an existence. Everything begins with Him, moves out from Him. And Paul says that he is sustained by the, by the energy that his life produces because he's resurrected from the dead and keeps on pouring his energy into my life. He speaks with a voice of vitality, knocking at the door is the divine speaker knocking at the door of your heart and the heart of this church is the divine searcher. I know your works, he says. I know what you're like. I know, you're through. I know you through and through. I know what you are on the inside. I know what you are on the outside. 
Nothing escapes the scrutiny of God. Nothing passes His judgment. All of, his, all of our action, all of our life is open to Him. Our attitudes, our actions, our life is open to Him. He is the divine searcher. Now when He takes a look at our life and the life of our church, this is what He sees. He sees first of all our half-heartedness. I know your works, He said, you're neither cold nor hot. You've lost the power to feel. You've lost the ability to sense with, with, with a deep sense. You've lost the ability to feel intently. You're lukewarm. What is the greatest congregation, the hardest congregation to preach the gospel to? It's the congregation that listens to the gospel every Sunday and does not obey it. And what man is the hardest man to lead into a living relationship with God? It's the man who sits in front of the pastor, hears him preach every Sunday, does not obey the gospel. That's lukewarm. He may admire it. He may tell his friends about it. He may even agree to its accuracy. But he, and he's willing to placate God, but he's not willing to obey Him. That's lukewarm. You say... Do you mean to say that we're lukewarm? Well, can you sing the songs of the cross without a tear? And can you talk of the holiness of God without a tremble? Then you're lukewarm. Now, I know when he talks about being lukewarm, he's talking about being distinctive. The thing that makes coffee distinctive is not just its taste, but its temperature. What is worse than a cup of coffee that has cooled to lukewarm. And the thing that makes a cola distinctive is not its, just its taste, but its temperature. What is worse than a cola that is warm to lukewarm? What Jesus is saying to the church at Laodicea is this. If you're going to be a Christian, be a Christian. If you're going to take the name of Christ, be like Him. If you're going to bear the name of God, live like God would have you live. I mean have some distinctiveness about you. Be either cold or hot. He knows our half-heartedness. He knows our high-mindedness. He said, I have need of nothing. I have arrived. You say, I have need of nothing. I have arrived. It's the person, when I hear that, I think about the person who comes by me at the door on Sunday morning and says, boy, you really let them have it this morning, whoever them is. Or, you know, it's, it's not him, it's them. You know. When I hear this, when I read this, I think about the man who went into the temple, popped his suspenders and said, as he looked at the publican, I'm glad I'm not like you. I have need of nothing. If there ever was a man who could make that boast, it was the Apostle Paul. He could boast, I have need of nothing. Yet he said, I have not yet arrived, but I press on to the goal. Listen, if you want God set against you, you keep on throwing back your chest in self-sufficiency. For the Bible says that he resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, and He will exalt you. He knows our high-mindedness. He knows our hunger, that is our need. And so He says three things. He said, buy of me gold that's refined in fire. I see that as spiritual values. He's talking about spiritual values. 
You need to know that in Laodicea, Laodicea was the banking capital of the, of the, of the Asian world. And in Laodicea, there, were the, there was gold that had been tried in the fire and it was used as the norm and standard of the banking industry. And everything else was judged on the basis of the Laodicean gold in the banks of Laodicea. Precious metal. What Jesus is saying is, you need to make me precious. You need to put me in the place of your life that's first. And everything else is judged on the basis of me. I become the norm and the standard of your life so that everything else is subordinated to me. On everybody's scale of values, there has to be one thing that's first. Jesus is just demanding that place. You put me first, precious, of value, first in priority, and everything else after that. Now, what does that mean for the church? It means that we can come, do all that we do, all the stuff that we do. We can put on all the trappings, but until we make Jesus Christ Lord of every activity, every moment, every class, every sermon, unless he becomes the norm standard by which we operate here, we have failed him. Then he said, and buy of me white linen. You need to know that in Laodicea was this factory that, that made linen, white linen that was transported, that was exported to the known world. And a person who had a white linen garment made from the white linen refined and, and, and made in Laodicea, he was really dressed. I see it as spiritual virtues. The Bible is not unfamiliar with that. The prophet saw the high priest standing before God in a filthy garment and the angel came, took off that filthy garment, put on a pure one. Jesus talked about being clothed in the wedding garment. The apostle Paul said, put off the old man and put on the new. What he's saying is this, you need to be dressed in my virtues, dressed in my righteousness. Take off this old lifestyle that has imperfection and flaw and filth and put me on, put on my virtues, put on the fruits of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace. Then he said, buy of me and this eye salve and rub it in your eyes. I see that as spiritual vision. I see it, that is a reference to the influence of the Holy Spirit who convicts of sin. In other words, what he's saying, you need to open your eyes, man, and see what you're really like. This church needs to open up his eyes as to the reality of it. Now in Laodicea, you need to know this, was a factory that produced an eye salve that was exported to the known world. Eye disease was common in that time. It is even believed that Paul's thorn in the flesh was an eye problem, an eye disease. Because of the arid temperature, the, 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 the dust of the, of, the, of the desert, people had eye disease. It was common. And so out of Laodicea came this resource, this supply for their eye disease. enabled them to see. He's saying, let the Holy Spirit reveal what you're like. There's an Old Testament prophecy from the book of Hosea. It says, gray hair here and there upon your heads. Gray hairs are here and there upon your heads and you know it not. Now that's pretty abnormal. 
Um, I, I, I guarantee you there's not a person in here that doesn't know how many gray hairs there are on his head. I mean, you got them counted. I do. I knew when the first one came in, I looked at him, mercy. Uh, you know, Shazam. Might not have been exactly what I said, but there's a, I've got a gray hair here, you know. I mean, you know them. You, you've seen them. If you didn't see it coming on your head, somebody told you about it. I guarantee you that. I mean, everywhere I go, somebody say, where'd you get all those gray hair? You know. So, well, I got one for every church member. There's one up there. There's one for everyone. I mean, if you, if it's pretty abnormal. The abnormality is that you don't see them there. Now, watch this. What God was condemning through the prophet was not just that they had this spiritual declension, not just that they had this lifestyle in Israel that was, that was, that was, that was wicked, it was the fact that they didn't know it. The abnormality was that the spiritual declension had come to the church at Laodicea and they weren't aware of it. Open your eyes, he said, and see that you're not as rich as you think that you're not as clothed as you think, that you're not as pure as you think. Let the Holy Spirit open your eyes to the reality of yourself. As McLaren said, in every situation, in every region, the worse a man is, the less he knows it. He is the divine searcher. He is the divine savior. Now the saving activity of Jesus is, for, is, is threefold. He saves us from the penalty of sin. He is saving us from the power of sin. And one day he will save us from the presence of sin. But he is always and has always been and forever will be the Savior. Now notice four things about his saving activity. First of all, Notice his saving posture. Behold, I stand. The word there in the Greek means with anticipation eager. It's like one who is on his tiptoes just waiting for the door to open. It's like he's anticipating that at any moment, that at any time we'll open our life to him, that the church will open its arms and welcome his power and his holiness and his love and his grace he stands. He stands before every door in your life. He stands before your spiritual door and knocks. He wants to come into your spirit and there indwell you in your spirit. He wants to live in your spirit. He stands before your social door. He wants to come in and make you the best parent you can ever be, to make you the best husband or wife or lover you could ever be. You say, I'm having problem with my marriage. Well, where's the Lord? You say, I'm having problem as parents. Well, where's the Lord? He wants to come in to your social life and make you the best parent and wife and husband and young person you can be. He stands before your vocational door. He knows what it means to work. He worked 30 years in a carpenter shop. He knows how monotonous that can be. What he wants to do is to come into your daily vocational activity and turn that which is monotonous to something that's momentous so that he can take your job and make it a platform of personal witness. 
He wants to come in to your vocational door. He wants to enter your recreational door, into the games you play. Stephen Offer told about the young boy whose parents sent him to the missionary school. He was rebellious and incorrigible. And there in the mission school, kind of like of an academy, he found the Lord. He was an athlete, played on the basketball team. The next game, the next night after the, he accepted Christ in the basketball game, they tipped off, tipped the ball to him. He went down, dribbled through a few players and, and, and laid it in for two points. On the way back down the court, he held up his finger as the one-way sign and shouted, Thank you, Jesus. Stephen Olford said, because of that, he was so savingly united with Jesus Christ, even making two points took on a new significance. That's what he wants to do. Notice his saving posture. Notice his saving patience. Behold, I stand and knock. It's a linear action in the Greek. It's present tense. It means perpetual knocking. It means persistent knocking, patient knocking. I stand and knock and keep on knocking and I'm not going to quit. I'm not going to turn away. The same Lord who said to the lukewarm church, I'll spit you out of my mouth, is the same Lord who says, I'll not be turned away by anything. I'm going to keep on knocking. I'm going to keep on trying. I would have given up on me a long time ago. I thank God he didn't. I tell you, he'll never let you alone. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my mind and in my fears, in my tears and under running laughter. He kept following, following after. He never quits knocking. Notice his saving promise. I will come in. That's his promise. The word is emphatic. The pronoun is emphatic. I will come in. What he's saying is, Somebody else may give up on you, but I will never give up. Somebody else may never be able to help you, but I can. Somebody else may turn away, but I will never. I will come in. That passage from John comes to my mind. He that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. I will come in. The only thing that keeps him from coming to indwell us and to empower us is our, is the lack of our willingness. It's the fact that we've never opened the door. I will come in. Notice his saving purpose. His saving purpose is twofold. For our spiritual enrichment for our spiritual enthronement. I will come in and sup with him and he with me. I alluded to that not long ago. He's willing, he's saying, I'm willing to be your guest. I'll take what you have. That's astounding in itself that he's willing to take what we have to offer. Our meager, our meager talent, our meager ability. He's anxious to receive. I'll take it, he said. And I not only will be your guest, he said, I'll be your host. I will sup with him and he with me. Now, in the ancient world, they had three meals just like ours, but the meals were not. Breakfast was a piece of fruit and a piece of bread. Lunch was a kind of a hurried-up meal that they usually carried with them out into the fields or wherever they worked. But the daifnon, the supper, was a meal that took hours. And they'd sit around the table and they'd enjoy one another's fellowship. It was a household time. It was when the family got together and they would enjoy not just the food but their fellowship with one another. 
That's the word Jesus uses. He's saying, listen to this, listen to this. He's saying, I'll come into your life and I'll make myself at home there. I'll put back my feet and we'll just have a great time in fellowship. I'll come in to stay. He comes for our enrichment. He comes for our enthronement. He said, I'll cause you to sit on my throne. Oh, listen. He wants to enthrone us. He wants to make our life like the life of a king. He said, the same position that God gave me. He said, just as, he said, I'll give you my throne just like the Father gave me his. The same position that he gave Jesus, he wants to give us. The same authority that God gave him, he wants to give us. The same enthronement the same glory, the same quality that God gave Jesus. He wants to give us. He said, I want to enthrone your life. I want to make it like a king. It's what Samuel Rutherford said from a cell. I live a king's life. And so he came to these scallywags, these ragtags of human history, these outcasts, and he gathered them up as he walked along the roads and he made kings out of them. He's not just talking about what happens when we die. He's talking about what he wants to do with us while we're alive. He wants to take the empty, miserable life and enthrone us. That's the saving purpose. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Hear what he said, the divine speaker. Know what he knows, the divine searcher. Discover what he offers, the divine Savior. When Jesus came to Golgotha, they hung him on a tree. They drove great nails through his hands and feet and made a calvary. They crowned him with a crown of thorns. Red were his wounds and deep. For those were crude and cruel days and human flesh was cheap. When Jesus came to Birmingham, to Durant, to Laodicea, when Jesus came to Birmingham, they only passed him by. They never hurt a hair of him. They simply let him die. For men had grown more tender they would not cause him pain. They only passed him down the street and left him in the rain. And still he prayed, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And still it rained, that winter rain that drenched him through and through. And when all had left the street without a soul to see, he crouched against the walls and cried for Calvary. Hear me now. Jesus had a whole lot rather be crucified by your hatred than ignored by your lukewarmness. Would you pray with me? Father,
cause us today to see where you are on the outside and what you want to enter. Our thoughts, our dreams, our goals, our life cause us to see that we have need of Thee because I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I'd like to invite you to these decisions. First, to receive Jesus Christ into your life. The latch is on the inside. He will not save you without your invitation. Without you inviting Him into your life, He will not come in. Has there ever been a time, I'm not saying have you been baptized or did you join the church. Has there ever been a time where in prayer, by faith, you've opened up your heart and life to Jesus Christ? I invite you to do that today. He stands at the door and just keeps on knocking. The second invitation this morning is for those of us who would be convinced, who would be convicted that there's so many areas of our life where He has been ignored and excluded. The days and the months go by when we have no consideration of Him, we just pass Him by. And the invitation is for a rededication of life, to let Him into those areas of your life where there is need. The third invitation is an invitation for you to join the church. And so we're going to ask you to come this morning as God speaks to your heart, as He knocks, as he pleads, as he calls, we'd ask you to do his will while we stand to sing. Come.